and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for today's episode. We've got an amazing guest, and I'm really excited to share him with you. But before we get to him, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So if you're new to the podcast We're excited to have you here. I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about what the world calls soft skills. We don't believe that these skills should be called soft. We believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft, it actually devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And today's guest is going to talk about these skills at at length. So you'll see that they are paramount to his coaching philosophy. One of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. The teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere that books are sold to purchase a copy, and you can listen to the book via audiobook. So if you enjoy getting content through your ears like this podcast, you'll get more of my voice through Audible. So thanks to all of you who have already purchased the book, and I've been overwhelmed by the responses that I consistently get about people who have gotten a lot out of it and how it's been transformative for how they think about their mindset. Thank you all so, so much. Additionally, if you're looking for one-on-one coaching and you are an executive, I run an accelerator program that is designed specifically for those who are interested in growing, learning, and figuring out how they can lead and perform better. So I coach a small amount of people and I do all of that one-on-one and then I bring them together for group experiences over Zoom, an annual retreat. It's really an amazing group. And so our next accelerator actually starts in July and is filling up now. So if you're interested in learning more, feel free to email me at brian at strongskills.co. Once again, that's brian at strongskills.co. I have 
been so fortunate to work with incredible leaders in the corporate world, and it's really something that I enjoy doing, so would love to hear from you if it's of interest. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, it would mean a ton if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. Those iTunes reviews, it really is how people hear about the podcast. I have heard from so many people that found us because people wrote reviews. So it really helps us expand our reach. Thanks to all of you who have already done so. And let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Andy Friend is the head coach of Connaught Rugby based in Ireland. And so we're going to talk about his experience and his journey and what it's like to set the culture at that club and how he thinks about leadership and his role as the head coach. This conversation is also about Andy's journey, and his journey has spanned over 26 years, 21 homes. He's traveled all over the world, places like England and Japan and Australia, and as I said, he's now in Ireland. So this is really going to be about a coach's journey and his what he's learned along the way. And Andy is somebody who thinks deeply, deeply, deeply about leadership and how he can not just have the best leadership for himself, but also how he can develop leaders within his club and within his organization. So Andy loves chatting about culture, loves thinking about culture, and is very intentional with how he can use transformational leadership to help his club be the best that they can be. We get in everything from parents to childhood to parenting and everything in between in this conversation. And you're going to love Andy's honesty and the way that he connects words to bring out his best and to inspire those that are around him. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Andy Friend. Andy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We were connected by Cody Royal. And since then, Cody and you and myself and a few others have been involved with really an opportunity to learn from each other. And every time we come together, I feel like you just have so much wisdom and so much experience thinking about culture and thinking about mindset that I just love hearing you talk. And so sometimes we get you for 30 minutes, sometimes we get you for an hour, but whatever we get you for, I'm grateful to listen to you and learn from you. So today is going to be fun to dive even deeper, just the two of us. And where I'd love to start is really on your journey, because when we get together as a group, we really talk about coaching and where we're at today, but I'd love to learn a little bit about what got you to today. So give me an idea of what life was like for you as a kid and what your upbringing was like. Yeah, good on you, Brian. And listen, this is one of the pluses of COVID, wasn't it? <laughs> you get to connect with really good people around the world. So um, thank you, Cody Royal, and thank you for for you, Brian, and and, and all the other coaches who've shared the, uh, the time on those chats that we do have. Um, yeah, listen, happy to expand on that. I, I was very fortunate. I often call it the lottery of life. You can't pick your parents, but I've got good ones. So, uh, and, and funny enough, today is their, their 55th wedding anniversary. So they're still around, mate, which is great. Uh, in the middle of, of two boys, um, older brother, younger brother. My father was uh, in the Department of Finance, uh, which is part of the Australian government. And as a young fella, we, we moved a fair bit. So born in Canberra, which is the capital of Australia, moved to Melbourne at the age of five and lived there for four years, fell in love with AFL rugby or AFL football, I should say. Aussie rules. Um, and then we got moved. Uh, Dad got posted to Geneva, Switzerland. And we moved over there um, as a nine-year-old boy. 
with the family. Um, hey, Andy, what was what was that like for you? You're nine years old, and what are the age differences between you and your brothers? Two years between all of us. So we're Dave, David uh, is my older brother, myself, Andy, and then Greg. So our, 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 the acronym is DAG. We are DAG, and uh, so for us, you know, as young blokes. This is back in 19, 1979. Um, the world wasn't a big place back then because, oh, the world was, sorry, the world was a very big place back then because there wasn't a lot of travel. So we'd never left, never left Melbourne or Canberra, um, but jumped on this flight and, and headed across to, to the other side of the world where they, where they spoke a different language. And, and uh, the months would, you know, so the, the seasons were different. So in, in December, when it's meant to be stinking hot and Santa comes, it was freezing cold and the snow was there. So as young blokes, it sort of opened up our eyes to, to new cultures and new, new beginnings. And we had three and a half years there as a family. Then, then my father was posted to, to London, uh, had a year and a half in London and then moved back to Australia. So a very transient sort of a, 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 an upbringing, very fortunate upbringing. Um, and, and it was in, London that I was first introduced to the game of rugby. I was a soccer player and an AFL player. Um, I got first introduced to the game of rugby and I fell in love with that. And I've pretty much been on that journey ever since, Brian. Andy, so I'm one of three boys. We're two and a half years apart. What were, what was the relationship like with your brothers growing up? I have my relationships, if you want to call them that when we were kids. But what was it like in the friend household with the three boys being two years apart? Um, yeah, listen, I, I reckon I was a middle boy. So, um, I was always putting shit on the young bloke and then getting beaten up by the older bloke, but then want to fight him as well. So <laughs> that's the uh, same as me. <laughs> yeah. So mate, it was, uh, and I, and, and, uh, and weirdly I got a shocking temper. So I was pretty fiery and, um, but it just seemed like we got on really well as a, as a, as a group of, you know, as a, as a bunch of brothers, but there was always fights and there was always, you know, one up and ship and trying to get on top of the other one. So, um, but the bloke in the middle, which was myself, uh, you didn't seem to be able to win. So if you, if you were beating the older bloke, then the young bloke could jump in and help him. If you were knocking the young bloke, then the older bloke could jump in. So um, it just seemed like this constant battle the whole time, but a lot of fun too. It's the same. I, I'm the middle child and I was always small. So my younger brother, even though he was two and a half years younger, we would go traveling and people would say, oh, are you two twins? And I would go, no, you want to see that we're not twins? And I'd give them a little, <laughs> a little punch or a push or, or something. But we went at it. We competed at every sport. We would fight with each other. But um, we were actually all good outside the house. We were, we were tough inside the house. But it was a lot of energy and activity. Um, so when I heard you tell your story, it, it sounded familiar. And I, even though I was small, I was fiery, maybe a bit of a temper as, as you described yourself. I had it in my head that I could take both of them at the same time. And it was not an accurate assessment on my part, but, um, so you're, you're making me smile with your story. <laughs> part that's different about our journey is that I stayed in the same house my entire life. And so I'm curious for you as a nine-year-old, you, you, you then go to a different culture and then you experience a different culture again, where the language is similar to what you grew up with. What was that transition like for you as a kid? And what did you learn from moving to those three different cultures and, and countries? Yeah, I think at the time I, I um, again, as a kid, you just take it all on board. But um, so I, I, I don't remember being daunting at all. I remember, I actually remember we, I went to the international school in, um, in Geneva and, and it was half English, half 
um, or half English American and and half uh, French. And I remember our Thursday, we we had to knock off on a, a midday on a Thursday, and uh, and I said, "What? Well, this didn't happen back in Australia. You know, you you went to school five days a week, and it was all the way through." And I remember saying to someone, "What do we do in the afternoon then?" And and um, this American fellow says, "Well, Thursday afternoon is when we fight the French." And I remember going, "Really?" And he said, yeah, 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 we fight the French. I said, oh, right. Huh? So where do we do that? They said, oh, we go down the over and we, we get stuck into them. So we walked. I'll never forget. It's my first Thursday there. And I'm like, wow, no school. This is cool. We get to go fight people. And, and we walked down and you could see the French sort of coming towards us and we were coming towards them. So I just walked up to the first French bloke I saw and whacked him in the head. And everyone's going, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, we're fighting the French. And they're like, no, we just sit there and call them names and tell them that we don't like being in their country and da, da, da. So it, that was probably the biggest shock for me. It was like, wow, because back in Australia, if you fight someone, well, you fight someone. Uh, <laughs> but this was very different, right? So that was that was an early uh, an early difference of cultures, if you like. But but shy of that, you sort of you know we fell into the routine of living in Switzerland, and and then I said skiing in in December when we would back at home, we'd be at the beach and you know, growing up with, with Lake Geneva beside us. And we were very, very fortunate. And then to move to the UK, to, to England or to London, very fortunate to go to good schools there. And um, but, but it, it didn't seem, that was our norm, you know. And, and I always say to people, your norm is what you're used to. And so my norm was, I had a mum and dad that loved each other, I had two brothers, one older, one younger. We lived in a good house. We went to good schools. That was my norm. It was only later on in life that you realise that, the norms, my norm was pretty, pretty special. My norm was pretty, I was very fortunate. Um, but what it probably did do for me, all that moving, I've been transit my whole life ever since. So since I became a rugby coach, my wife and I have just moved into our 21st home. We've been coaching now for, for 26 years, of a 26 year of coaching. Um, so probably that upbringing of, of you know, moving Canberra to Melbourne, Melbourne to Geneva, Geneva to London, um, made it very easy for me just to go, well, that's what we do. We move. And uh, it's probably allowed me to, to, to be a, a pro rugby coach. Underneath the moves, one of the things that I've heard from a lot of podcast guests who moved a lot as a kid, we've had military brats, people that are constantly moving way more than even you did as a kid. They often share, they feel as though they developed an ability to read a room. And the ability to figure out, all right, who do I want to be friends with? Who do I want to avoid? How do I become friends with them? And there's almost like this spidey sense that they feel they've developed from transitioning to new environments. Did you pick up any of that as you reflect back on your childhood? Obviously, when you're a kid, you're just being a kid. But as you reflect back, did you pick up any possible emotional intelligence that helps you in your job today? Yeah, and I think they're right, too. I think you do. I mean... One of my only other jobs other than being a, a rugby coach, I used to work at an organisation called Outward Bound where we used to take people out in the bush and, and it was all about guided discovery learning, the like, but you'd take people out in the bush for eight to 26 days somewhere in there and, and um, because you've removed them from the normal um, you know, the, the normal uh, day-to-day things that they'd be doing, you get to see the real character. And, and what I learned really quickly there was pretty much in any group, and I'll, I'll define a group as, as 10 people or more, but in any group, the same characteristics are always there. So you're going to get the, the loud, obnoxious, knows everything, can't be told anything type of person, all the way down to the, 
the quiet underachiever who is actually the heartbeat of the whole group but doesn't want to take the limelight and all the different all the variety of characters in between you all i i reckon you always find that in in a group of people 10 people or more so um very early on in my outward bound uh, time as, a, as an instructor there it was trying to pick who's who in the zoo and and i and i tended to find that i could pick that easier than others and maybe it's because I was moving around so much and, and we'd had that experience as a young bloke. But, um, you know, to, to this day, I think you use the word emotional intelligence there. Uh, I'd like to think that I, I have the ability to do. I don't always get it right. Um, there's certain blind spots. I know I've got certain blind spots that I just don't see, but I'm aware of what those blind spots are. But in terms of some of those core character traits, I can pick them pretty readily. When you're in a group of 10, what character traits do you typically possess i'd like to think uh i'd like to think i'm caring i like to think i listen um i i know what i want but i'm not the person to jump up and say what i want quite often and i'll go with the flow if i'm happy to if, if i think and, and take take outward bound as a classic example so one of the things you you do there you know you get taught very very early how to navigate how to how to build a fire how to build a latrine how to build your hutchie and how to abseil do all these things and i'd be the bloke in the background saying uh, for example if we got taught how to navigate i'd be navigating myself and if i thought that the leaders were going the right way i'd be quite happy just sitting back watching it but if i knew they were going off course i'd be hey hey we're not doing that so um probably a little bit more reserved sitting in the, in, in the shadows of touch until something goes the way i don't think it should be going then i'd jump up and, and talk about it but um, probably more importantly, I think, uh, I'd like to be a support for people, which is probably why I coach. I think it's a fascinating dynamic where you have groups that need to have security and safety, but great groups also find ways to challenge and make things difficult. I think of outward bound as facilitating that I've never been on an outward bound trip, but I've talked to so many people who have called it a transformative experience for them. And when I hear you talk, I hear, all right, they give you the security to know how to live and survive. And they teach you those things. But then there's this unknown element of being out in nature and, and what could happen. And I think back to, we had a guest on the podcast, Ethan Zahn, who was on the show Survivor and won the show Survivor. And he often talked about winning that game was really about him figuring out how he could serve the people in the game. And it's a very cutthroat game, but he realized really quick that he wasn't cutthroat by nature. So he really tried to figure out how to serve people. I'm thinking about security and challenge though. And we can fast forward and we'll come back to your story as well. But as you think about teams and, and you coach and lead teams, how do you think about creating the security, teaching them how to start the fire, teaching them the basics that they need to survive at the level that they're at, while also creating an environment of possibly some discomfort, some challenge, some pushing their elements to go out, out outward bound? Um, how do you think about that mix? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, and again, I reckon outward bound was one of the one of my greatest learnings as a coach, um, because j just by the sheer nature of how it was set up, um, you know, you're out in the bush, uh, and in the Australian bush, we've got we've got snakes, we've got spiders, we've got um, bushfires, potential bushfires, we've got all sorts of you know things that that can that can do you harm. And we're also on the water, so there's there's the water element of it. So let's say we've got a ten day course, um, day one to three was pretty much me as the instructor or any of the instructors, you know, guiding people, informing them 
around the structures and, and what's going to keep them safe and what's going to allow them to survive. Pretty much, and then day four, if we go day four to day six, it's allowing the play, the, the person, the participant out there to explore a few things, but you're, you know that you're sitting right behind them and, and you're not going to, you're not going to come into harm's way. And, and then day sort of seven, eight, nine, ten, it's pretty much stand back and just let them be and let them get to the, get, get to the end of the journey feeling like they've just achieved this, this wonderful thing. And, and, and literally in coaching, I do pretty much the same thing, the front end of the season and the front end of a week, you're going to hear from me or the other coaches middle we're there to support and to guide game day, or as we lead into game day, that's over to you. And, and I think that mix of, of, of knowing when to, when to step in, when to step back and be in the shadows and when just to let them go and let them make the decisions. I think that's the, one of the arts of coaching. And um, I learned, I'm not suggesting I've got the art of it yet and I, and I get it right all the time, but I learned a lot of that at, at Outward Bound about, about that balance of when to step in, when not to. The part of my life that I think this is so relevant for is parenting. And I hear so many parents in my community say, well, we want them to be comfortable. We want to put them in the class with kids that they know or put them in a camp with kids that they know. And my wife and I kind of look at each other and say, well, maybe, but isn't there value in them being in a new camp or a new class where they don't know anybody and learning how to transition? And it's interesting because that that balance or that integration of security and then challenge is the art of parenting and figuring out like, cause if your kid doesn't feel safe, it's going to be really hard to help that kid do anything. So they have to have a baseline level of safety. And we all know how trauma can go against safety in a, a really negative way. And how do we challenge them? And uh, you know, one of the things my wife and I always said from a young age with our kids that we would try to do is when they would fall, instead of saying, are you okay? We'd say, you're okay, right? It's just like these subtle communications that I, and language that I think impacts them. And now when they fall, they say, you're, I'm okay. <laughs> and sometimes they're not. And we need them to learn also, hey, you're not okay. And that's okay as well. But I think about this as a parent because it's a really hard thing to figure out is how do we create a secure environment while also making sure that they're uncomfortable sometimes, that they're learning and they're developing. And, and it's probably the hardest challenge of being a parent. And I, I know you're a parent as well. How, how do you think about outward bound coaching, parenting, um, and how there might be similarities and also differences as well? Yeah, well, I think they're all very, very similar. To be honest with you, Brian, it's you know the parenting is is though it's your blood, and 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 so there's that element sometimes of, of trying to overprotect. But just with that, as you're talking about the falling over, I remember saying to our, we got two sons, Josh and Jackson. I remember saying to them, if you haven't got scabs on your knees, you're not having a go, right? You've got to have scabs on your knees because that that tells me that you're trying things. Now, I don't want more than scabs. More than scabs can be a bit tricky, but if I know you've got scabs on your knees and, and maybe a bit of bark off your hands, I know you're having a try and that's how you're going to learn and how you're going to grow. I think one of the greatest, um, to me, one of the greatest lessons I learned as a parent, and again, I was brought up by two good parents, but never make an idle threat, never make an idle threat. So if you say, listen, do that again, you're not getting dinner and they choose to do it again, they ain't getting dinner. Now that sounds pretty harsh, but I promise you, they don't do it again a second time. Um, so I said, and, and that might be an extreme with that, but 
Uh, I reckon it's a that is the art of parenting, which is the art of outward bound instructing, which is the art of coaching. All of those things blend in. It, it's giving enough rope that the the person, the client, the the, the the you know your son, your daughter, in the end make their own choices, and with every choice there's a consequence. And, and if you get that that balance right, where you you're not putting them in harm's way, but they know that the consequence is real, um, then they learn from that. The idle threat thing is really relevant because it's about telling the truth and having integrity. And when I ask athletes, who is the coach that who who's your favorite coach, and who's your least favorite coach, they'll often tell me their favorite coach was the one that told them the truth. Yeah. And their least favorite coach was the one that played games with them. And I hear it. It's, it's phrased exactly like that. The, the coach that played games with them, they'd say, yeah, this coach would always play games. I didn't know where I stood and it, they were cluttered. But the coach that was honest with them and told them the truth, they knew where they stood. And I think that's the same thing with our kids. Like we, we're not playing games with these people's lives. Like we have to be honest with them. And there's obviously, look, you're a parent. There's, you don't have to tell them everything there. There are things that they don't need to know as a coach. There are things that your players don't need to know outward bound. There are things that they don't need to know, but at the end of the day, are you going to do what you said you're going to do? And if the moment that you don't is the moment you risk losing them. And so I think that that resonates with me. Yeah, and I always just say to I say to you know coaches coming through, I said, you don't have to tell them the, the whole truth, but you never be dishonest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so never ever ever tell them something that's not that's not factual, um, but you can't tell them everything either. And 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 I reckon that that's an art in itself too. Um, in in being able to to again read read the person and read the room, you know that enough information that's going to get you through. That's the facts of it. You don't need to know A, B, and C or, or, or X, Y, and Z at the tail end of it because that's only going to confuse you and potentially upset you when you don't need to know that. But, but also say to players, if you ask me and you ask me the right question, I'll give you the right answer. Right. So again, and that's one of the things that, as a as a young player growing up, and 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 I was fortunate enough to 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 play at a reasonable level, but I didn't like the coach. Um, if I asked the question, who wouldn't give me the right, it wouldn't give me the honest answer. So I always say to the players, fellas, you know, ask me, if you ask the right question, I'll give you the answer, but you gotta be ready for the answer. So if you ask the right question, it'll come to you. And it's the same thing with, with, with our two sons growing up. We, um, we're very, very honest with them. Um, you know, we're very, very um, action consequence with them. I'll never forget, you know, my wife said to me at one stage, uh, you know, Boys, boys were late going to you know, come get to school, and I said, "Because you, you're driving them, though." She said, "Yes." I said, this, "This wouldn't get in the car." I said, "Well, I'll take them tomorrow." And they said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, boys, what time's the car? What time you got to leave for school?" Eight thirty. Said, "Sweet." So at eight thirty, I just drove off. The boys weren't in the car. I drove straight to the school, and uh, walked up to Sarge's office. He said, "What can I do for you, Andy?" I said, "Mate, the boys are going to be late." He said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, they weren't in the car, and they're going to be late. They'd be running here now." And then my phone's ringing and the boys are, where are you? I said, no, the bus is gone, boys. It was 8.30 and you weren't on the bus. We're going to be late. I said, yeah, but that's your doing, not my doing. Never missed another day. Never missed getting in the car again. Um, highly embarrassed because they got to school late, therefore got detentions. Uh, but, but that's the facts of it. Like, yeah, you said you're going to be ready for 8.30. Well, get in the car at 8.30. 
But that embarrassment that they experienced, they probably never want to feel that embarrassment again. And right. the personal responsibility. So by feeling some emotion and by feeling some quote unquote failure, they then can grow and change our behavior. And typically that is how we change our behavior is when we experience some sort of pain and it doesn't have to be physical, um, but even if it's a little bit of emotional pain, then it can move us to change our behavior. So I think that's just a really profound story. And um, thanks for sharing. I want to go to rugby because you mentioned you didn't play and then you're in London where I'd imagine it's a bigger deal than perhaps what you'd experienced in your childhood. Why did you fall in love with rug rugby? Tell take us through why that was the sport that really started to grab you. You mentioned soccer earlier, Aussie rules, football, obviously part, part of your childhood as well. Um, but what was it about rugby that, that drew you in? I, I'd seen the game of rugby. I'd seen it played. And, and again, um, for those who've seen the game, it, it's quite a brutal game. Like, it, it, you know, it's quite confrontation as a young boy, middle brother, you know, loving the scrap and loving that sort of stuff. I always thought, geez, that'd be great. And, and you get to challenge yourself to see if you can run over the top of someone and score a try. And similarly, if someone runs, you've got to be brave enough to put your body in front. So I had this image of what rugby was. And then we got to London and, and I went to a school that played it and I, and I just loved it. Um, and, and I often talk to people about the hook of rugby. Uh, I know they're great. Fijian teacher who sadly passed away and when I was a young bloke coming through school his name was Mr Singh and, and Mr Singh I never forget him at a, at a rugby uh, a rugby um, evening at the end of the year Mr Singh, Singh stood up and he said um, he said stand up if you've ever scored a try and everyone those, those who stood up or most of the room stood up and he said sit down if you weren't proud and no one sat down and he said Stand up, keep standing if you ever made a tackle. And he said, and, and now sit down if you weren't proud. And no one, and he said, this is rugby. And I never forget, I thought, this is rugby. Like, you know, to get across the whitewash, or the, the white line to score a try was, it was a really proud moment because, you know, you got points for your team and, and to make a tackle. You know, so it really meant something to me. And I, and, I, and I got the hook in the mouth and here I am, you know, 30, 40 years later still still involved in rugby and and uh, and I love it it is my passion but it's also I'm very fortunate to work in a job that is my passion so um I often say to people you know find something you'd love to do for free and, and get paid for it yeah you're pretty fortunate there's two places I'm going to go but I want to start with pride Mr. Singh's hidden on pride and a sense of pride but when you described why crossing that line was so such a proud moment for you. You mentioned the team and getting points for the team. And so I have this framework that I actually developed with wrestlers, American wrestlers, collegiate wrestlers. And we talked about cockiness, confidence, and pride. Uh, cockiness is believing I'm better than someone. Confidence is belief in myself. And pride is this belief I'm part of something bigger than myself. And so as I hear you talk, I hear about, hear that come out. Like, well, mm -hmm. the pride is being getting points for my team. It's, it's proud to add value to mm. something bigger than me. And I just think that's something interesting. You mentioned passion and the ability to work in your passion. I just finished reading a book about, it's called the passion paradox. And they talk about the downsides of passion. And when I hear 21 homes in 26 years, I hear some of the potential downsides that come with pursuing a passion. 
So talk about what that's been like for you. Uh, and not saying that's all negative moving, but are there sacrifices? Are there things that have been missed along the way while you pursue this passion of yours? Yeah, there has. Before I even start on that though, Brian, if you don't mind, I'll just talk a little bit about my wife because um, without her support, I, I couldn't do any of the things that I've done. And I mentioned Outward Bound. I met Kerry at, at a place called Dead Horse Gap, which is in the middle of the snowy mountains in Australia. I was a, I was a participant uh, on a course, a 26-day course, where if we complete the course, um, I'm sort of getting judged no one else on the, on the course knew that I was getting judged to be, become an instructor. But at the end of that, I'm going to hopefully become an instructor. And we had to, we started a place called Charlotte's Pass. We walked up Mount Kosciuszko, which is the, the tallest mountain in Australia. And then we're heading down through the Barrymore Ranges and down through uh, the, the Snowy Mountains, basically, to get to a place, Cape Conran, about 360k away. And it was day two, and we were meant to get a food drop in, in Dead Horse Gap, and we got lost. And we got madly lost and we missed this food drop. And anyway, a day later, we finally found it. And as I'm walking towards that with, with 13 other participants, um, I could see this vehicle there. And we're in the middle of the Australian bush. So it's not meant to be a vehicle. I could see this vehicle there. And then I could see this woman smile. I thought, that's got to be our food drop. And then I could see this, this woman smile. And I thought, oh, cheeky bugger. And she got cute eyes too and a really good smile. And then she got out of the car and she had a pair of jeans and blundstone boots on, which to me was pretty hot. Like I'd been out in the bush for two days and, uh, and it was Kerry. And, and she's like, welcome, you made your food drop. And I'm like, and she said, um, what's your name? I said, and I tried to hit on it. And I like, think back on that, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, 24 days later, I get told, well done, you're going to become an instructor. Where do you want to go? And I said, I want to go wherever that Kerry bird's going. And they sent her to WA and they sent me to North Queensland. They couldn't have sent us two further place apart. But thankfully, four or five months later, we got together. Now, I share that story because when Kerry met me, that was the bloke I was. I'd just come off working on a farm. I'd come to Outward Bound. We're, we're, we're Outward Bound instructors for a year and a bit together. And then Kez fell pregnant. And that was, that was that's our eldest boy, Josh. So as soon as Kerry fell pregnant, uh, I pretty much said to her, listen, she said, well, what are we going to do? We're going to have this baby. You have the baby. Um, not married. None of that sort of stuff. Didn't matter to me. Didn't matter to her, which was good. So we decided we're going to have this bub. And, and then she said, well, how are we going to pay for this and do it? And I said, well, I used to play a bit of footy. And she's like, really? I said, yeah. And we never talked about it. So we moved to Queensland, had Josh. Um, I played a bit of rugby up there. And then I said, I used to do a bit of coach. Oh, well, I'm qualified as a coach. And, and Josh was two weeks old when I got my first coaching job. And that's when people say to me, how long have you been coaching? I think, how old is Josh? He's 26. So I've been coaching 26 years. So this amazing woman met me not knowing anything about footy. Now we're on this coaching journey. And, and to this day, like she's sitting in the room next door over there, um, she's still with us and she's been part of this, this journey for us. So the moving part of it, um, i got to take my hat off. That's, pretty much all Kez. I'm, I am one of the fortunate ones where if I get offered a job, we, Kez and I have a chat about it and then I go, sweet, let's go. And she does all the background stuff. Um, and off we go to this you know, new adventure, seven years in Japan, two different stints, three years in London, seven years in, in New South Wales, two different stints, Canberra, Ireland, wherever around the world, that woman does it for me and does it for us. So 
um, you know, that, that whole part of the journey for me, uh, probably the gypsy part of me as a young kid, I just jump on the plane and go, she does all the background stuff, mate. So I can't take any credit for it. That's that lady there. We started today by talking about your parents celebrating their 55 year anniversary. You're about halfway there. It sounds like, um, what has led to you all having a strong partnership? Um, well, it's actually just a, a genuine love and a care for each other. You know, I think, um, you know, I, I said we actually are married now. So we got married when the boys were um, eight. I'm going to say eight and eight and six. It was in Japan anyway. And the reason we finally got married was because, well, the reason we didn't get married early, like I didn't believe in it, to be honest, even though my parents, you know, they've got a great relationship, but Kerry's parents were divorced. And so she definitely didn't believe in it. We didn't have the money. So I, I kept looking at it going, why the hell would I be spending money on a wedding when I, like I I love this woman. So I don't need anyone else to, I don't need to confirm that with anybody else other than this woman. So um, Kerry's, I love you. And whatever happens there with the kid, I'm with you, whichever way we go with it. She's like, well, I'm the same with you, friend. So that was the way we went about it. And we ended up getting married because the boys said to us at one stage, my surname's friend and hers is Rawlings. They said, why? why don't you guys have the same surname? And uh, we said, well, um, well, mum and dad never got married. And they went, oh, don't you love each other? Well, no, we do actually, but yeah, actually it's a, it's a fair point. So we actually got married in Japan and I rang my parents that night to say, hey, listen, just letting you know we got married. And um, my mother was furious because from the minute Kez fell pregnant, she's like, you got to marry this woman. I'm like, nah. And in fact, every time you ask me, I'll add a year to it. So please don't ask me again. <laughs> she asked me a heap of times. But, but it, we didn't do it for anyone else. We did it in the end for the boys and because it was, we felt probably the right thing for them. Did it change the way we treated each other? Not at all. Did it, did it change the way we cared about each other? Not at all. But we did it because society makes you do it, I believe, and society wants you to do it. Um, so people can now tell, you know, I can now say, yeah, we are married. Um, but how long have we been married? I can't even tell you that. And that's probably wrong. I, 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 put, I should be able to tell you. I, I know the day because it was Valentine's Day. Um, and we did that for reasons so I wouldn't forget it. It's not that I don't <laughs> care about marriage. I do care about I actually I more care about the relationship and the fact that you care about each other. So you asked the question, how we made this happen? Well, we, I think we genuinely care about each other and we genuinely love each other. So this whole COVID thing, it's, I've, you know, Ireland's been in, in, in lockdown pretty much for out of the last 13 months, we've been in lockdown for nine months of it. Um, I've actually loved it because we actually get on really well, the pair of us. So we have backgammon most nights, we watch movies, we go for walks, we have chats, we, you know, we just we have a great time together. So I'm in a really fortunate position there. But how have we made it through? Has it all been rosy? No, it hasn't but we've been honest with each other and we've challenged each other and we've had our difficult times and we've had our moments that have, have, have really stretched us, but we've worked through those. Um, and yeah, we've got a great relationship. There's a couple of things that I'm going to bring to your attention that I think are worth noting. Number one is you knew 55 years, we started this conversation. And my guess is the reason that you knew that your parents are celebrating their anniversary is a, cause it was today, but, B, it's probably important to them. It's probably something that they do care about, that how many years they've been married and to celebrate that. Whereas you and your your wife have perhaps a different 
relationship with what the anniversary means and how you celebrate each other. And, and perhaps that's for you. So that was one thing that I was just thinking about. And two is the idea of novelty. And one of the reasons I've struggled with the pandemic is because I feel as though I'm not having that many novel experiences, whether it's going to a ball game or a concert or a show or out to dinner. I just, I feel like I'm sort of on Groundhog's Day a lot. So while I get to love what I'm doing, I'm passionate in a similar way to you. And I love meeting you on Zoom and this stuff's great. I miss the connection that comes with being in a room with someone and not knowing what the hell is going to happen. What's interesting as I listen to your story is you've been on the move your entire life. And Mm. so the last year is a novel experience for you. Like I could play backgammon with my kids. I do games with my kids every day. I mean, that's, that's normal for me. And so I think one of the things I've observed with this last year is for people that are on the run and are constantly on the move, they say to me, Brian, I love this. Like I'm mm-hmm. home for dinner where I'm, my, my relationship's never been better. I'm there for my kids. Like I'm really grounded. I feel healthy, but for people that have that normally, this is really difficult because they're not experiencing what's novel to them. And I think humans are meant to feel alive and have new experiences and get excited from that and create memories from that. You're going to have so many memories of the last year because it's different. Whereas someone who is more, uh, I'm going to say grounded, but that's not even the right term. Um, they're, this is more similar to what their daily lives are. I, I find for me, it's a hard to make new memories and excitement. Does any of that land with you? How do you think about what I'm talking about? No, I think you're spot on, mate. And again, um, yeah, we, I left Japan in 2016. Kerry left Japan in, in, in July, 2015. I moved back to Australia and I took up a job with the Australian Sevens team which is a very um, transient lifestyle. So Kez was living in, in, in Canberra, in our home in Canberra. I was living in Sydney and traveling the world. We used to go to, so yeah, the, the, the World Series circuit um, was every year you'd go Dubai to Cape Town, to Sydney, to Wellington, to, to, to Vegas, to Vancouver, to Hong Kong, to Singapore, to London, to Paris. That was, that was every year you'd do that. So. We, we pretty much spent two and a half years apart. And, and um, as you say, the novelty for, for Kerry and I is actually being together. And as you're saying that, I'm like, actually, you're spot on because we, we, it's not that we wanted to be apart. We had to be because of my work and because of, you know, the, the nature of the business that I'm in. And so this time at the moment has just been brilliant where um, you get to spend time with a person, you actually decided you want to spend time with your whole life, which is pretty damn novel for me as a rugby coach. So that is, as you're talking, I'm going, yeah, that's actually right, Brian. That's exactly why I probably enjoyed it as much as I have. And, and I know Kez has enjoyed it too, because we actually get on with each other. So it's a good sign. It's a good yeah, sign. It's a good sign. I, I want to go to coaching because we've spent a lot of time on your journey. Um, you mentioned sort of, hey, I play some footy. Um, you know, I can go coach. Was the thing thinking about i think you've mentioned playing first and then you could get coaching was it thinking at first hey i need to provide for this kid um i need to get a job i'm passionate about rugby let's go coach or what led you to pursue this as a career and then i'd love for you i know your career you mentioned coaching the sevens and and keep in mind that 
I know what the sevens are, but a lot of our audience probably doesn't because we're American and we're ignorant to a lot of things. But um, when it comes to rugby, some, some will, some won't, that's the American relationship with rugby, I think. Um, But walk us through your journey and what I'm most intrigued by it with your journey are the different cultures that you've experienced. I mean, Australian, Irish, Japanese. I mean, these are very distinct, different cultures. So fill in the gaps for us a little bit and let us know your coaching journey. And then I'd love to really get into culture and then we'll get into team culture as well. Yeah, sure. Well, listen, as a young player, young Australian boy growing up, my, my dream was to play for the Wallabies, which is our national team. And, and I had some pretty serious knee injuries near the tail end of my, my schooling time. Um, and it then became pretty apparent to me that I might not make that because of my knee. But I was actually asked a really good question when I was in about a year 11 at a careers, um, with this careers, careers thing at school. And they pretty much said to you, what are, what are you going to be? What are you going to be when you leave school? I had no idea. Everyone said to me, fevers, you're writing something down. And the bloke came up to me and he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. He said, what's your dad? I said, he's an accountant. He said, you know, works with the Department of Finance. He's like, well, put an accountant. I don't want to be an accountant. I knew I didn't like numbers. And he asked me a really good question. He said, so if, you, if I was to put you in a room with 100 strangers, what would you be most comfortable talking about? And I said, rugby. And he said, well, don't be a fool. You, that's, that's not a profession because at the time it wasn't a profession. It, it was an amateur game. But it planted a seed for me. And if I couldn't play for the Wallabies, what's the next best thing is to coach. So I, I left school, again, the gypsy and I went across to the UK and across to Europe and I traveled there for a year. I came back, um, I, got a, I got a scholarship at the Institute of Sport and at the same, and then I had my first or my second really serious knee injury. And then I realized if, if I want to stay in the game and I can't be a rugby player, I better go and study. So I, I went to University of Canberra and I, and I studied sports science coaching, which is a brand new degree back then. I did a three-year degree. I did that. I finished that. And then my first major job when Josh was born, I, w- I was fortunate enough to get the coach on scholarship at the Institute of Sport, which is a graduate diploma in, in coaching. And that started me on that journey. So there was definitely a plan if I couldn't play that I wanted to be in coaching. Andy, and I said, oh, Andy, for those that don't know about the Institute of Sport, I think it's worth just pausing here and educating them. So there's something incredible that's happened in the last 20, 30 years where Australians have really led the way when it comes to sports science. And um, I think a lot of it has, has been birthed and you can correct me if I'm wrong by the Institute of Sports. So um, they, I mean, if you go to a professional sports team in the U S right now, there's probably an Australian um, on staff and a lot of the, I mean, the, the world of sports has just drastically changed how they train their people and how they take care of their people. Um, and so talk a little bit about what it was like to be on the early side of that and be involved with the, that institute and, and just give people some insight into what that place is like. Yeah, well, I mean, my, my belief of, um, of how the whole thing came about in 1976, the Montreal Olympics, Australia didn't fare too well. And as, and as a proud sporting nation, um, uh, you know, I think we came back, if we came back with a gold medal, it might've been one or two, but, but nothing. Um, and pretty much the nation and the government said, this is not Australia. Like we, we want to compete. So they set up this Institute of Sport in Canberra 
um, and it sort of grew from there. So sort of late 80s, early 90s, it was definitely the mecca of sports science and, and um, you know, state-of-the-art nutrition, biomechanics, physiotherapy, training, all the rest of it was, was happening there. And I was fortunate enough firstly to be an athlete there and then to, and then to be a coach there. It's actually disbanded now, sadly. It's whole, the whole thing's disbanded. So um, because it's gone more into, into regional areas and more satellite stuff, um, but the concept is still there. But as, as you talked about there before, Brian, there's a lot of, a lot of Australians around the world applying their trade, whether they're nutritionists or psychologists or biomechanists or you know, athletic performance directors, because of the, you know, the, the wealth of knowledge that was generated at this Institute of Sport. So again, um, you know, life's all often about timing too. I was very fortunate. I came through in an era when you know, we were riding this wave of, of elitism in, in that area and, and certainly um, leading the way with that. So very, very fortunate. I was one of 17 coaches on scholarship. Um, I was the only rugby coach. We had a water polo, gymnastics, a tennis, soccer, you name it. And, and there were 17 young budding coaches thrown into this program together and challenged about how, how can we best guide people and educate people and, and get the message across. And it was physiology and anatomy and it was psychology and it was social aspects of sport. It was everything. And I came out of that really, really um, richly um, challenged uh, and, 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 and just felt, yeah, I just felt like I had the world at my feet um, and then was fortunate enough to, to land a job at, the, at, uh, at New South Wales rugby and uh, yeah, pretty much taken off from there. So um, that's how it all started. Uh, but along the way, you know, it's, it's not always, it's not always roses either. I've been sacked twice. Um, you know, I've had multiple occasions where you challenge, you question yourself, are you, are you good enough for this job? Um, you go from skills coaches into assistant coach, into a head coach, and you lose your job as a head coach and you have another crack at it and you lose your job again and you, and you keep going through it. So I don't think it's a job for everyone, mate, but, uh, you know, the journey we've been on has been, has been brilliant. Talk about Japan because, I'm so fascinated by the Japanese culture. I've never been, but it's pretty high on the list of places that I'd like to visit. I've talked to a lot of people who have spent time there. Um, and then I didn't know that rugby was a thing in Japan. So I'd love to learn more about the culture of the Japanese, what it was like for you as an, as an Aussie coaching there, what you learned from that experience. And then I'd love to learn also going to Ireland. I think about Ireland culturally and another place I haven't been, although I was supposed to be, going there uh, before the pandemic. So I'm glad I didn't because I didn't know you then. And now I can hit you up and grab a pint with you. Um, but talk about Japanese culture and Irish culture because an Australian culture, I mean, these are very strong cultures that yeah. to me are general from a generalizing standpoint, I, I, I think they're very different from the people that I've interacted with from those countries. So uh, I'd love to learn a little more from you as far as what it was like to be an Aussie coaching in Japan and then in Ireland, uh, what that's been like. Yeah. And, and you're right. They are the, you know, the contrast in all of those cultures are, are quite significant. So um, I, I remember I was, I was, I was 30 years of age when we moved to Japan. Um, we've had two stints there, a stint of three years, and then a stint of four years. So in, in 1999, we moved there and, and I was working for Suntory. Um, so if you think about um, so Japanese rugby is pretty much company rugby. If you think about any big Japanese company, um, Toyota, Panasonic, uh, Kobe, Suntory, Toshiba, 
they've all Rico, they've all got rugby teams and a lot of money spent on these rugby teams. And now it's, you know, it's called the top league. Um, like they're multi-million dollar investments that these companies make in rugby. Um, and, Is and it like that in, in the other sports as well in Japan? The, the, the next biggest sport, well, the next biggest sport that's like that company driven is actually volleyball. Huh. Um, and volleyball is massive over there with companies as well. They've got a huge A-League, the Japanese soccer league, but that's, uh, that's not company driven. That's more um, regional driven. So they've got the Yokohama team and the, and the Tokyo team and, and the baseball is the same. It's, it's regional driven, but the, but the companies are the ones that own these big rugby teams. So um, I moved over there when I was 30 years of age and we had a, a Kontoku. So I was the coaching coordinator was my title. And the Kontoku is the Japanese word for the main boss. And uh, his name was Omori-san. And, and I'll never forget if, when he, he, the first thing he asked me was Nansai uh, Desuka, which means how old are you? And I said, uh, I'm 30. And he said, Watashi wa Sanjimi Sai, which means I'm 31 years. And, and I'm like, I remember thinking, well, whoopee do, mate. What's that mean? But what it meant was in his culture, he's higher than me and he's therefore more superior than me. And he actually, we lived in the apartment underneath him. And it's, again, this hierarchical thing. So your age in Japan is, is everything. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that was one of the things that it took me a while to get used to. Um, the respect that they have for each other. So we had a, uh, a young rugby player, Nagashima, who every time I'd walk into the room, Nagashima, hi, andy son, and he'd bow towards me. And, and so my, I would, I'd bow back to him. What I didn't realize at the time was when I was bowing to him, if I'd bowed lower than he bowed, he'd have to go lower again. And so he'd, oh, sumo son, and he'd bow again. And it's like, why, why does he keep doing this? So I'd bow again. And Anyway, you could end up getting this real game where he'd end up on the floor, but he would do that. He, he, had, to, he had to make sure that he was lower than you. But, um, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the first three-year stint that we had there, I learned so much about um, their generosity, about their respect, about their cleanliness, about their efficiency, about their safety. It was just a beautiful place to live. And we had at the time, Josh and Jackson were five and three. So for two young blokes living over there um, and learning all about that, learning to ride bikes on roads that you would never take them in Australia because uh, in Australia, the car's the king and in, in Japan, the bike's the king and they'll stop and they'll let the kid ride along the road. That wouldn't happen in Australia. So all of these different nuances around the new culture, the food, you know, the, the, the engagement with people, the chopsticks, everything like that was just so different and so refreshing for us. Um, we then went back, Kerry and I went back in 2012. So we left there in 2002. Ten years later, we went back. We had another four-year stint over there. And without the kids, the boys stayed in boarding school back in Australia. Loved coming to visit. But that was very different for Kerry and I too. So then we didn't have the boys. So we could actually go and, and try out a lot of the eateries and, and you know, and, and um, you know, experience a totally different side of Japan than we'd seen previously or Tokyo than we'd seen previously. So that was fascinating. Uh, we had time in London, which I had spent before as a kid. Um, you know, London, very, very different again. Uh, busy, but nowhere near as efficient, nowhere near as clean, hustle bustle, nowhere near as respectful. Um, and I say that respectfully because I actually enjoy London. Back to Australia and then over to Ireland and the Irish... The Irish are a, are a 
I think, a really happy-go-lucky type of Aussie. Um, and in fact, a lot of our ancestry in Australia is either English, Irish or Scottish. So you can see the similarities. But um, we live in the west of Ireland, on the west coast of Ireland, uh, in Galway. Um, we get all the, all the weather off the Atlantic Ocean. Um, the closest neighbour is probably New York. So I reckon if you, if you live on the west coast of Ireland, you've got a pretty good sense of humour. And they do. And uh, love a beer, love a story, love a song. Um, just chilled. Uh, I, I say they're the culture that find a way. They find a way to get things done, and, and that's what they do. So, really quickly there, Brian. Um, all of those cultures are so diverse, so different, so rich in their own way. And in in my experience of it, um, we've never tried to come in and live like an Aussie. We've come in and we said, what are the what are the unique things about this culture, and how can we blend? And, and, and what can we learn? And, and that's probably been one of the things that's, that's stood us in good stead. How did you approach coaching the, the athletes, knowing that culture could be different? Is, it, is coaching coaching universal? Or did you have to adjust your, your style based on each culture? Very much adjust the style. Um, so if I think about Japan, you know, I think about when I was a coach in Aussie and Aussies, you know, we're quite, quite an, an abrasive, quite abrupt culture of people. And we'll tell you exactly what we think. You can't do that in Japan. Firstly, you don't know the language. So I had a translator and it happened to be Omri Sun's uh, sister-in-law. Uh, and, and actually, um, Satoko and I are still very good friends. She's a beautiful lady. Um, but at the time, you know, she knew nothing about rugby. And here was I, this young, brash Aussie turning up, yelling at blokes in, in, uh, in my crass Aussie, uh, trying to tell them what they could and couldn't do. And I couldn't work out it in her little sing-song way of trying to translate it. That doesn't mean the same way as what I've just said. So what the hell is going on here? But she ended up saying to me that they, they wouldn't respond to your way. Um, so I had to change. I had to change my way, um, which I did. You, before we started recording, I asked you, hey, what do you want to talk about? And you said, I love talking about how I develop people and how I coach people. What do you do to develop relationships with the athletes that you work with? Um, one-on-one meetings. I think you use a questionnaire to get to know them. Walk us through what you do to build relationships and to help develop uh, your athletes. Yeah, well, I'm a big believer. Like, I don't, I don't coach rugby players. I coach people, and and I think um, if if, the, if if I'm going to get the best out of those people, I need to know them. I need to know them as people. I need to know that that they know me as a person as well. Um, so as you said there, yeah, I have a, a pretty basic questionnaire that within the first month of being in a, in a new place, I've had, um, ideally I've had a half hour with every player and every staff member based around, you know, some of the simple questions, what's your weapon, what's your work on? So what do you, what do you remember weapon? What is it you could be well, that you're world-class at on the footy field, off the footy field as a staff member, as a staff member and away from here, what are you world-class at? What are you really, really good at? And how can we, how can I help you be better at that? What's a work on? What's one thing that if you did this better, you would be better at what you do? Um, what are the three things in life that are most important to you and why? Great question, because everyone's got a different answer. And in fact, culturally, you see a, a different answer. In Ireland, I reckon 95% of my players and staff said family number one. In Australia, it's not family number one. It's not, you might get 50% say family. 
but Australians are, are probably a lot more about me and it's about, it's about money or it's about fame or it's about my own glory and you know, my own progression. Um, in the Japanese, it, it wouldn't be about family either, it'd be about the company. So culturally, very, very different uh, in the way they think about what's the, what, what are the three things most important to you and why. I often ask, you know, what, what are the three words that best describe you? And then what are three aspirational words that you'd like to be described as? And how do we bridge, bridge the, 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 the gap, if there is a gap there? Um, what are your goals and aspirations? So pretty simple questions, but just questions that when put to somebody, quite often they've never been asked that. They've probably never had someone sit down and take the time to want to listen and to share back. But I find that by asking those simple questions, straight away you build rapport and with rapport, you build trust and with trust, you can then build honesty. And, uh, and through doing it that way, um, I feel like I, I've been able to, to, uh, to connect with, with the staff and the players and not all the time, but, but more times than not, you tend to end up um, getting the best out of people. Being the head coach, most teams, the players or the athletes want to have at least some time with the head coach. Your assistant coaches can do wonderful stuff. They can build relationships, but there is something different when you're talking about the person that controls who plays and who doesn't. And as much as you could empower your staff, they, the athletes often want to act, have to hear it from the horse's mouth. So talk to us about, um, what you do, do you do one-on-ones? Do you do group meetings? You, you mentioned that questionnaire. Uh, what is the tempo or pace with which you do it to make sure that you stay connected on a one-on-one level to, to those athletes? Yeah. Well, COVID has been our, the greatest challenge of that. You know, COVID has been the greatest challenge of that, of that, what I call that genuine connection. Um, so normally Brian on a, on any given morning, um, I'll black out, I'll block out nine o'clock or eight, eight o'clock, depends on what time they're coming in. But let's say it's normally between 8.30 and 9.30. You won't find me in the, in, the, in the office because I'm out and I'm out shaking hands. Good morning. How are you? What's happened? What happened from yesterday? How's the girlfriend? How's the mother? Whatever's happened. And uh, you know, for whatever reason, I have a, my wife continues to tell me, friend, you don't forget things. I have a, a bit of an elephant memory when, you know, it, we got 44 players and we got 17 staff. But if I've had a conversation with, with, with you, Brian, the day before, the next time I see you in the morning, it just comes to me straight away. And so, Brian, we talked about this. How'd you go with that, mate? And it's a handshake. And, and one of the, now we can't handshake at the moment. And that really bugs me because to me, that's part of the connection. It's part of the, and you, you, you feel, you feel, you either feel energy or you feel, you feel sloppiness or you feel fatigue. You feel all sorts of things in a handshake. And, and so that inability to be able to have that at the moment and even to be on site with a lot of these players, it's taken away a major chunk of what, what I believe coaching is all about. So in, pre-COVID, that was how we do it. In COVID, um, it's been tricky. And, you know, I, 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 I set up walk and talks with players because we can do that now. I send a lot of text messages, a lot of phone calls. We do the odd Zoom call, the odd team meeting, sometimes a, a team's call, sorry. Sometimes just one-on-one. Um, a lot of stuff in, in small-sided groups. Um, but, yeah, we, we've had to be quite uh, – quite, um, uh, what's the word? Um, agile. Yeah, agile is a really good word. We, we, we've had to try and move with it and try and find ways to, to keep that connection. But I, I think that's one of the things we've lost in COVID. We've lost that – well, certainly I feel it. I've lost that real um, – 
I would consider it a strength of mine, but that that um, that ability to be connected with 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 the players and the staff. No question for me as well. As I hear you talk, it's very clear that you believe in transformational leadership. And for those that aren't familiar, there's transformational leadership and transactional leadership. Transformational leadership tends to be developing the person. Um, transactional tends to be, hey, do your job. You know, just go do your job. That doesn't mean you can't blend the two. I'm always intrigued by people that want to be transformational leaders in the transactional world. And you mentioned getting fired twice. It's the reality of sports. Coaches get fired. Uh, it's just what it is. How do you maintain a transformational leadership style in a transactional world? Yeah, well, every now and then there's collateral damage and that's what you end up being sometimes. But I remember being challenged with it. And um, I remember actually after um, my second sacking, I did a, I did a TV interview and, and, um, and the reporter came in and, and uh, I, I, like I, I I left the media for about five days. I said, no, I'm not talking to anyone. And, so, and then we finally let this TV crew in. I said, I'm not talking about the sacking, no worries. So we're talking about something else. And as the bloke left, he said, just want to say, you're one of the most um, easiest blokes to, to, that I've worked with over my 25 years as, as a cameraman, but you're just not successful. And I went, what do you define success by? He said, well, you've never won anything. You've never won a, a major championship in the Super Rugby. And that was only my second year. My, my third year in Super Rugby, and I went, wow. I said, so that's what you determine success by? And he said, yeah. I said, ah, you and I are off two different planets, mate. I said, did you meet my wife when you came in? And he went, yeah. You met my boys? Yeah. You walked into my house? Yeah. You met me? Like, I'm successful. <laughs> I don't need a trophy to tell me that. So, you know, it, it, I know I haven't, and, I, and again, it depends upon the team you're working with too. I know I haven't won a lot of a lot of trophies, but at the end of the day, I've been doing this job for 26 years. I love it. I believe I've got brilliant relationships. Um, I'm not defined by the bloke who wins trophies or doesn't win trophies. You know, I always used to say to my boys, fellas, when they finally put you in the ground, if all they have on your headstone is the day you were born and the day you died, and a good bloke with good character written underneath it, you've had a good life. So that to me is success. It's not what games did you win, what games did you lose, how many trophies you win. So, you know, to me, Brian, I'll stay being transformational and working with people. And if others don't like it or they don't value the fact that I haven't won trophies, well, that's on them. It's not on me. So I know part of my job is to try and win them. And I do try my hardest to win them. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But that's the nature of the game. We talk about transformational leadership. How do you develop the leaders on your team, the the athletes? What do you do to try to empower them to be better leaders? We have a a, a really strong system where, um, like, I've got an outside guy who comes in and, and works with these players. Um, we go through a, a pretty rigorous uh, leadership election process so what is what is leadership all about and 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 who wants to be on that leadership group um what are the traits that we see in leadership uh, so you know from the outset when i first came in uh, to connect rugby it was all about um you know what 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 is is a leader and what style of leadership is there uh, and then we get the, the, those that want to be leaders to put their names forward and then we work with them we work with them just like we work with someone on their, their kicking skills or their passing skills or their gym skills or their speed or their mental skills we'll work on their leadership skills and um, we work on what type of leader they are what type of leader they want to be 
put them in situations where they can get better at that. Again, through COVID, it's been tricky because we can't have those one-on-one -on -one interactions. Um, but my view is that you know leaders aren't born. Leaders leaders are developed. Um, you've got to you've got to put people in the, who want to be leaders and who are comfortable being leaders in in the right um, situations and work with them. You know, tell them when they've done a great job. Let them know when they could have and possibly could have could and should have done something slightly differently. Work with them on all of that stuff. And and out of that, where you give them space to be and allow them to lead, you do get good leaders. You mentioned that first question is what is a leader? How do you answer that question? I, I answer the question by saying a, a leader is someone who um, who others uh, will look to and and who not only talks about the values but lives the values that that he or she believes in. So, for me, leadership is about it's it's an action word. It's it's not a it's not a phrase. It's not a title. Um, but in order to lead, you've got to live. Uh, you've got to live with integrity. You've got to live with the values that you say are important to you. Um, many different ways to lead. You know, you, you, you could be a follow me. You could be a sit back and be the shepherd and, and try and guide them. And, and that's probably more my style. I'll sit back and I'll try and guide. And, um, but, but for me, uh, yeah, leadership's, it's a, it's a very much a, an action um, and it's a, it's a being and, it's, uh, and it happens every single day. There's not a day if you want to be a leader that you're not actually living those values and, and being that person that uh, you, know, you can look, look in the mirror at the end of the day and say, I'm pretty happy with what I did today. As I listened to your questionnaire, I thought about that's you guiding, that's you asking questions, A, thinking about them and what their answers are and helping them get clarity from the inside out rather than you dictating to them how they should be thinking and how they should be behaving. So it, it's pretty interesting to hear that perspective as a shepherd. I think that's, I've, I've actually done a leadership exercise where we had to get, we had to get sheep from one side of the field to another side of the field. And it's really an interesting exercise um, because you really have to be thoughtful and intentional with your movements, how you go about doing it, what your patience is. And if you try to just drive it, it's not going to go very well. Um, yeah. So when I think about a shepherd, I, th I think there's something to that. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was fortunate enough to do a executive coaching leadership course a couple of years ago. And one of the things that stood out to me was the definition of coaching and, um, and, and the true definition of coaching was something I'd never really thought about, but um, you know, the true definition of coaching is uh, I'll ask you the questions and but you'll find the answers. Um, and, and at the time someone said, is that how you coach? I said, no, no, like there's moments I'll do that. But then they, then they put up this, you know, the example of, of being a mentor and, and the mentor is, well, I'll tell you, you tell me, and together we'll try and find a solution. And then they put up the example of a, of a consultant. I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. And, and when I look at what is coaching, it's a blend of all of those three at different times that, you know, and probably my style would be more to ask the questions and that you find the answers, but there's definitely times where I'll mentor you. And there's definitely times like at halftime where I'm telling you, this is what you're doing now. So that, that beautiful blend of, are you a coach? Are you a mentor? Are you a consultant? Um, and I think the best coaches are able to blend all of those three at different times, really purposely knowing exactly which one, which, which mode I'm going into and, and be able to deliver that. So um, my, but, but I think my default style would be more to coaching.
It's so interesting because from a profession standpoint, I am that, that first coach. My job, my training is to ask questions and help people discover from within. And I was just on a podcast yesterday with a sports coach. And I said, yeah, my coaching is different than your coaching. You have to give people answers. You can't always ask questions. Like there comes a time as the coach where they're looking to you to have an answer and to lead them. And you have to deal with it if you make the wrong choice and the wrong decision and you have to own it. Whereas my coaching, I can really sit back and just continue to put it on my client. Having said all that, one of the things that I've realized, uh, my uncle is a psychotherapist and you know, I once asked him, I said, Uncle Bob, you're very presumptuous. Like you're a very presumptuous human being. And he may listen to this. So hi, Uncle Bob. But I said, how does that work? He's like, Brian, somebody comes into my office and they tell me everything that's going on. And I go to them. All right. So it sounds like you've got issues with your dad being overbearing. And they'll look at him and they'll say, no. They're great. We don't have to go there. We can keep moving. And and so the reason I tell that story is because there's so many different ways to do your job. And for me, I've, I've come to reality about, I am a coach, yes. And my main job is to ask questions. And there does come a time where it's okay for me to share my thoughts. It is okay for me sometimes to mentor. But what is big for me is to ask for permission because I'm not in the locker room at halftime. The, the, there isn't a time on this. This doesn't need to be executed right away. So when I do, I'll often ask my clients, I'll say, do you mind if I share something with you? Or would you like me to give you a piece of my mind? And then they've given me permission yeah. and then I can go into a different mode. Uh, and for him, he does, my uncle Bob does a really good job. I think of developing a relationship with someone that he can be presumptuous and not break the relationship. So I think it's important to know the difference between a coach, mentor, and consultant. And I think you're spot on and to recognize that we're all different. And there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. What matters is that you're authentic to what works for you and you're, you're, you're your best self most often. And that's yeah. taken work for me because yeah, I'm designed to be someone who speaks my mind. Like that's how I was brought up. I was not brought up in that Japanese culture. I yeah. talked back to teachers and I got in trouble for it. But at the same time, I was given a leash to, to speak my mind. But sometimes that gets in the way of me asking a great question to help someone else bring out their best. I want to start to wind down with there's, there's two big things that I'm most curious about. And I'm going to start with the first one. How do you empower your staff to do the work that you're not able to do or that they might be better than you at doing? How do you think about empowering your staff so that your whole team can be rowing in the same direction? Well, I just give them space, mate. It's pretty simple. You know, I, I, one of the first things I did when I came to Canada, so um, I came in as the head coach, but we had an attack coach, we had a defence coach, we had a forwards coach, we had a, a head of medical, we had a head of athletic performance. Three weeks before I got there, I said, on day one when I get there, um, each, each and every one of you has got half an hour to tell me how you want to run this. And if it makes sense to me, I'm going to back you with it. So come up with the best presentation and let's go. So all of them actually came up with really good presentations. And, and, and I asked a few questions during it. And I had others to ask questions during it too. And, and in the end, I just said, oh, brilliant. I love that defensive system. I wouldn't have done it that way, but that sounds great. Pete, go for your life. Um, yeah, that's a fascinating defense, attacking system, Nigel. Go for your life there. And, and so, you know, and I have the, the staff come back to me at different moments and they say, um, you let us be friendly. 
you're always watching and it's a bit like the gardener approach, isn't it? Yeah. Eyes on hands off sort of thing where you're watching the whole time yet. Uh, and I'll, I'll probe with questions. What are you thinking with, we're doing a drill that way or what's your thoughts on, on why we're doing that launch there or why we're doing such and such over here. And if the answer comes back and it makes sense to me, I go, yeah, that makes sense. Perfect. Because as a, you know, as, as, as I was once said, and someone once said to me, Freddie, what's eight plus two? What's 10? What's six plus four? What's 10? Right. So there's two different ways to get to 10, right? So many different ways to climb the mountain. As long as you get to the end product, which is 10, 10 out of 10, you, you know, back other people to do it. And, and I find that I learn more that way too, because Andy Friend has a way of doing something. And it's the way that I was either taught or the way that I've, I, I learned how to do it but I'm not afraid to look at another way. And if it makes sense to me and, and, uh, and I get engaged by it, I'm like, wow, this is really cool. I wouldn't have done it this way, but this works too. I can get to 10 like that. That's unbelievable. All right. So I realized dinner, I think just entered the room. So I'm, I'm very conscientious of holding someone from their meal. So I want to start to close with, with just this one last question around culture. How do you define your culture? Uh, what does your culture look like? Just, uh, lay that out for us and, and how you think about culture um, with your team. Yeah, well, the, every team has a culture. Um, and, and to me, culture is is the things that are going on when no one's watching. And, you know, if, if no one's watching, what's actually happening? We can all talk about the big words on the wall, but, um, you know, when no one else has got their eyes on you, what are people doing? What are people saying? How are they actually conducting themselves and, and what are they doing with that? So, um, for me, the culture, you know, the two or three big key things that you want to stand by, what's your identity? You know, if your identity is ambition, belief and community, which ours is, well, then the whole time our, we've got to be living that. We've got to be living ambition, belief and community. And if we're not, well, then take it off the wall because that's not what we're about. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a really easy word to say. It's a hard word to get. Um, but, I, but I think to me, culture is everything. And but again, like being that leader, you've got to live it. You've got to live it on a daily basis. I love community. Uh, I really struggle with teams that say family. Really struggle because I don't think a sports team is a family. You don't fire your family. You don't um, trade them or cut them or like anything like that. It's blood. It's, a, it's just a different relationship. But community, I mean, gosh, I think we all are part of communities and communities can be powerful and special. So I don't know if that's one of the reasons you all focus on community, but I, I love the word community. I think it is way more powerful than the word family. Uh, I also think we don't choose our family. Um, and so I, I push back on a lot of teams that talk about family because I, I just think I don't, I don't really see it in sports. Um, mm. I think it's, and I think it does a disservice to what family is. I think it's, it's not true um, to the power and also the, the challenges that come with family. So anyway, it's just a thought that I had that I didn't want to let go. Andy coach. Um, I sure we could talk for another hour or two. I'm sure we will in the future, but for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of your belly, um, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go. If people want to follow the, the squad or yourself on social media websites or anything else that you want to just give a megaphone to that you really value. Um, I'm going to just give you, you know, some time here to just promote anything that you want to just shout out and, and bring people, people's attention to. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. I love the chat too, mate. Some really good questions there. And 
as always, when you do these, it gets you thinking, doesn't it? Um, gets you thinking about why you do certain things and, and how you could do things better. So I've really enjoyed the last hour and a bit. Um, Connet, Connet, I'd never heard of Connet Rugby, um, C-O-N-N-A-C-H-T. Connet Rugby is the West of Ireland. Uh, we have a, a Twitter account at Connet Rugby. Um, I'm on Twitter at AndyFriend2011. Um, it, it's... Uh, Connacht, if it's not your favourite team, it's your second favourite team. Um, we're one of four proud provinces of Ireland and uh, we got a great, a great group of blokes uh, and a great group of people that work um, for Connacht and, and we're trying to make rugby in Connacht um, even more special. So, uh, yeah, follow us along and, and uh, as I said, always great having a chat to you, mate. Well, it's my favourite team. I can't wait to come visit and, and see you. We... Uh... We were planning to go out. There's a nonprofit that I'm involved with that's in Ireland. So we were planning to go there, play some golf. Uh, I'm sure I'll make a detour and, and come visit you as well and 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 cheer the team on. Um, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and then LinkedIn's the other place that I like to play at Brian Levinson. And everyone can listen to any of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Coach Andy, great to see you. Looking forward to our next chat and uh, be well. We'll see you in Ireland when you come here, mate. Good man. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I have a, a pretty basic questionnaire that within the first month of being in a, in a new place, I've had, um, ideally, I've had a half hour with every player and every staff member based around, you know, some of the simple questions. What's your weapon? What's your work on? So what do you, what do you remember weapon? What is it you could be well, that you're world class at? On the footy field, off the footy field, as a staff member, as a staff member, and away from here. What are you world class at? What are you really, really good at? And how can we, how can I help you be better at that? What's a work on? What's one thing that if you did this better, you would be better at what you do? Um, what are the three things in life that are most important to you and why? Uh, 